Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bayer. We address some of the world's most pressing global challenges and continue to develop new solutions. As the population continues to grow and its age increases, we will need better medicines and high-quality food in sufficient quantities. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Well, it's been a very green EU election campaign so far. Climate and plastics have been headline-making issues. But this week, which is both European Green Week and European Public Health Week, we're going to tackle an issue at the intersection of those two themes, air quality. The World Health Organization attributes up to 7 million deaths annually to air pollution. It's statistics like that which are starting to touch a nerve among people in the most polluted cities, for example in China, and those who are the most vulnerable, think those with respiratory conditions, or those who look after the vulnerable, such as parents of small children growing up in cities. Everyone knows someone affected by these issues. My own 66-year-old mother, for example, is waiting for a lung transplant. She has emphysema. She could never walk or cycle along the streets I use to get to work. It would aggravate her condition too much. We've also got political reasons to notice this problem now. Think the Dieselgate example, where in 2015 car makers, in particular Volkswagen, were revealed to be cheating on emissions tests. They tricked their customers and the public into thinking their cars polluted less than they really did. Today we also have a plethora of devices and apps recording air pollution levels. They let users see the true extent of their exposure. On top of that, camera technology is advancing, which lets us literally see pollution in new ways. The EU will need to be involved in whatever changes we make to reduce air pollution in Europe. Indeed, it's already part of the problem. The European Court of Auditors recently found major differences in how the EU's air pollution alert systems actually work. What the European Environment Agency considers as poor air is actually labelled as good by some authorities, in Poland for example. And a mosaic of city-level systems mean that what is actually horrible air in that system in Brussels and Milan is considered sufficient in Krakow and Sofia. Here's another thing to consider. Unlike other deadly things you can breathe in, like cigarette smoke, it's a lot harder for individuals to control their exposure to air pollution. We can't all wear masks all the time. And anyway, that's hardly the point of living in a rich country, is it? So what can we do? 
Today's interview and panel discuss some of the options. Let's get into it. Joining me now on the podcast is Zoltan Mashai Koshebek. He is from Hungary, but living here in Brussels and working at the European Public Health Alliance. And you are the manager for health policy coherence, which I think is a great title. Welcome to the podcast, Zoltan. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. Now, I thought we could start by talking about a report that your alliance put out where you labeled air pollution as the invisible killer. Could you tell us a little bit about what is the research and the thinking that led you to give that label to air pollution? Sure. Air pollution is known as the number one environmental risk factor of health, and it causes many diseases, many chronic uh, diseases, uh, which are very costly for the society. So being a health advocate and working for an alliance uh, committed to better population health, it was somehow an imperative to being serious on that and start working on that, especially then we are aware how costly and deadly those diseases are. And we saw some figures that I think came from the World Health Organization, where they were saying up to 7 million people a year die from the effects of air pollution. But that also includes literally tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands in Europe. Exactly. So the recent calculations for Europe are 400,000 deaths. And just to illustrate it, the 7 million is equivalent also the death caused by tobacco. So it is often said that air pollution is as dangerous as tobacco, but while tobacco is obviously dangerous because you Mm -hmm. can smell and feel it, air pollution sometimes it is invisible. So that's why we thought it is time to pull together what science says. Mm -hmm. And science is clear. There is evidence that air pollution causes a lot of diseases, uh, more than we thought before. And that's why we also initiated a campaign around it. That piece of research looked at the different sources of air pollution. It includes transport, it includes air pollution. And when we looked at the detail, we thought, given that the majority of European population lives in urban areas, in cities, so targeting transport and road pollution would be an appropriate action to improve significantly population health. Now, that's one close to my heart. I uh, cycle to work most mornings. And it's not something that I really thought about too much. I knew that there were some streets that you should avoid because it's obvious you can feel the traffic and sometimes even feel the pollution if it makes it hotter or you can you can see it as well. And then the Dieselgate scandal happened and I suddenly realized there are some things that you just don't even realize are there, including all of the effects of these millions of diesel-based cars and the companies that were cheating on their emissions test. Has that been a bit of a turning point in the discussion that more people now start to think about uh, the problems that are just not obvious. Absolutely. So Dieselgate is a very eminent case which shows that it is a European problem. Polluting cars uh, were affecting in each country and then air pollution as used diesel cars move. So first we thought that it is helpful to illustrate how much it actually costs So we looked at a given European countries, European data, and based on 2016 data, we calculated that the road transport costs are about 68 slash 80 billion euros. Mm -hmm. Why is the difference? In terms of the healthcare people need to get because of that pollution. It includes hospital admissions, medicine costs, but also reduced productivity related to health. And based on OECD data, the vast majority, more than 90% of those costs are health-related costs. Mm-hmm. And diesel slash petrol cars are mostly to blame 
for them. Why are the difference? Because of Dieselgate, because you have different testing methods and because real emissions are not necessarily in line with laboratory emissions. Mm -hmm. So more strict uh, methodology shows more cost, but it is huge. Good news, however, that we also calculated for different policy scenarios. So mm -hmm. uh, if you implement... So there's uh, ways to get it down. Obviously. Yes. More car-free days, getting away from polluting cars and electrification, taxing mm -hmm. diesel, and many, many other measures. If you include them, then you can save from 9 up to 12 billion euros health cost savings. Mm -hmm. And there are some big cities now that have put in low emission zones or even ultra low emission zones. So I know Brussels has been moving towards that. London has been quite strict. Do we really see a major difference when that happens? Or, or is it the case that this is kind of a losing battle, that even with those policies, the pollution levels are still too high and we're not really having the impact that we need to have with public policy. I think those measures are absolutely crucial and timely and they are also justified because of air pollution limits. If you look at air pollution limits you can uh, see whether they are met or not. In most of the cases they are not met so you have to do something to reduce air pollution mm -hmm. and uh, as a responsible city you have to limit the pollution and one efficient way to do it is now especially to limit and introduce those measures. So we see it as uh, very effective measures. You have to target the pollutants, and then I think it can initiate population level change. And are we seeing the EU enforcing these limits? Because it strikes me that one of the biggest problems of the European Union institutions at the moment is that they're very good at creating regulatory frameworks often ones that satisfy a lot of the stakeholders and that respond to citizen concerns, but they spend a lot less time and money enforcing the rules that they've created. Are you satisfied with the level of enforcement that EU officials are undertaking here? I think EU action can bring a huge added value. EU pollution limits are crucial, but they are as valuable as they are implemented. Mm -hmm. And as a health advocate, you often face the argument, this is not an EU competence, but it is simply not true. If something is European, it is air, because mm -hmm. that pollution uh, moves. But not only air pollution moves, but diesel cars are moving as well. And here, again, we have a European dimension to, to discover. Many Western cities, we mentioned London and Brussels, introduce low emission zones, mm -hmm. so diesel cars are less favored, some cases, by consumers, so they are sold. And what we have as a result, we end up second-hand diesel cars polluting central and eastern uh -huh. Europe. So we are basically the West exporting this problem into central and eastern European countries. Which is true and morally also very dangerous because it not decreases but increases inequalities. Mm -hmm. The whole heart of the European project is cohesion to reduce, to reunite the continent and those actions or lack of actions uh, doing the opposite. Citizens born in other parts of Europe have the right the same level of health and if there is lack of European action to tackle the European dimension of that problem, I think uh, the European project uh, and finally European citizens' health will, will suffer. Mm -hmm. And what do you think is the most effective way to turn that around? Is it that we need new air pollution limits or is it more important to enforce the ones we've got? before having a battle about changing the, the standards? I think it is very dangerous to force decision makers to choose because both are equally important. What about air pollution limits? They are, if I'm not mistaken, set up in 2006. Science has developed a lot. 
we know much more. Air pollution is much more dangerous than we thought. So there is a process ongoing to revise those limits and very likely that they will be made more strict. So I think that's one action. But it doesn't help if we just fix the limits and we don't do anything on implementation. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the actual practical personal health effects of some of these problems. You know, the one I draw on is my mother. She has emphysema and she's waiting for a lung transplant. And she lives in a small town in Australia. So generally the air is pretty good. But she has to travel to Sydney, which is a huge 5 million city, in order for her checkups and where the transplant would take place and where the recovery would take place. And she finds it very difficult to be in Sydney because of the air pollution. It has an immediate effect on her ability to breathe, to get around. She claims, and I I don't know, I can't prove this is true or not, but she says immediately things like her blood pressure go up when she's in Sydney and that there's a range of other effects. So I can imagine it's similar for people with other problems like asthma and so on. Is that the sort of day-to-day effect that, that you come across quite often? This is a very important point because we know the numbers, but if we look at individual cases that can illustrate very well what's happening. Asthma is indeed a very good example because air pollution can impact you. And we actually just discovered recently such a case. It was very unfortunate. So we are talking about a nine years old child Mm -hmm. called Ella who had severe asthma and who suddenly passed away in London. Her mother was a bit puzzled uh, what was the reason, so started an investigation about that. And she didn't think about air pollution at the first time. But then it came out that when the air pollution hikes were observed in London, then Ella had also an asthma attack. Mm -hmm. So now we can scientifically prove Mm -hmm. that air pollution contributed to her death. And I think that's uh, very sad, but also very important to recognize. And just to add to that, on the same uh, year, 27 other children died as well. Mm -hmm. So Ella was just one of them. And that illustrates, we are talking numbers, billions, but one death is already too much. And is this something that you get a lot of traction on? Do you get a good response when you try to go to the biggest polluters? Are they willing to work with you and other advocates to change the system? Or, Or are you finding that it's a bit of a brick wall, that people want to minimize your concerns and say that regulation and tougher regulation is not the solution here? Um, having experience in the public health field where we deal also with tobacco, alcohol and unhealthy food, experience and evidence shows that regulations does work. Because of the magnitude of, of the problem, we recently organized the European Diesel Summit and we wanted also the polluters, the car industry to be there and they, they, they were not there. But and why are you doing that? Because wasn't the commission going to organize something like this? Or, or were you doing that to replace the Commission's failed summit? Actually, that was the car industry organizing a so-called European summit earlier, uh-huh. but without European involvement, without the NGOs and without the broader um, picture and the stakeholders. So that's why we felt the need to do it properly mm-hmm. and to discover all uh, aspects of diesel pollution. And sadly, during that event, it was also discovered that, if I'm not mistaken, 2017 was financially the most beneficial year for Volkswagen, which means that still the business is ongoing. And we were also noticed that consumers received individual letters to buy a new 
diesel Euro 6 type car because it fits the latest standard, while we forget that at the end of the day, those are all fossil fuel based technologies. And then it seems that regulation and enforcement is needed to improve our citizens. And do you work much with consumer organizations? I'm thinking Bayouk, which is the Europe wide consumer organization. I know they've been very frustrated at the lack of ability that you have in Europe to take consumer action lawsuits, the class actions against companies, for example, Volkswagen would be an obvious target given what happened over the diesel gate. And there have been some changes to the legal system there, but it's still not as easy as in the United States. But would you consider working with those consumer organizations to launch kind of group actions against the big polluters? In our case, Cooperation is a must and we believe in joint work and we pretty much help each other's works. Consumers' perspective are essential in that and we have to be very careful not to blame the car owners. They thought that they have less pollutant cars and diesel gauges prove the opposite. So yes, we do work with the consumers also in other areas because consumer protection is pretty much linked to health protection as well. While uh, Yes, indeed, they can focus on how to fix the car issue. We can also take a more broader perspective about people sitting in the car, but also pedestrians who walk, and I believe we complement each other very well. And maybe one final question, because I know it comes up in the European election context and the big changeover that we're going to have of the top jobs here in Brussels over the next six months. And it's back to one of those points you mentioned earlier about EU health policy not being one of the big core legal powers of the EU. And there's a lot of speculation about how the health department might be arranged, or do you give health to kind of one of the the difficult countries, the country that you think is not supporting the EU, and so you marginalize them and whatnot in a portfolio like the health portfolio. How much do you see the importance of health changing in the EU system as we start to see the connections with issues like environment, issues like pollution and so on? We can almost say that all policy is a health policy because each policies affect uh, health. Uh, there is also a legal principle in the treaties that health should be included in all policies. And our work on air pollution and transport illustrates that very well. But I would like to also refer to the European citizens. According to Eurobarometer studies, almost 70% of the citizens would like to uh, have more European action on health. So that's why at the European Public Health Alliance, we also initiated a campaign for Europe, let's do more for health. And I would uh, be very skeptical about pro-health new commission without a dedicated health commissioner. So this is something we are calling for, but it is not enough. You have to also mainstream health in other non-health policies. So that's why we are also calling for a vice president for sustainable well-being, Mm -hmm. the portfolio of whom would also include health, environment, climate, uh, consumer protection, Mm -hmm. which is also vital to on a broader context to achieve the sustainable development goals. There is no sustainability without health sustainability. So the future of health and clean air in Europe go hands in hands in at least in our work. Zoltan, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thanks for the invitation. You were listening to Zoltan Mashai Kashevik from the European Public Health Alliance. It's time for the podcast panel after this message. A message from Bayer. Advancing life. That's what we at Bayer are all about. As a leading life science company, we are contributing to finding solutions to some of the major challenges of our time through our innovations. We also meet our responsibility to protect the environment in many different ways. 
We are continuously working to reduce the environmental impact of our business activities and develop product solutions that benefit the environment. For example, we offer innovative and cutting-edge digital farming technologies that help farmers use resources more efficiently. From sensors to satellites to smart irrigation systems, digital technology is enabling farmers to take advantage of the data at their fingertips to build successful farms and make agriculture more sustainable. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. And welcome now to a mega podcast panel. First of all, our special guest, Kalina Aroshikov. Welcome, Kalina. Good morning. Kalina is one of our energy and climate reporters here. Then we've got Lena Rabarus, regular podcast panelist. Good morning, Ryan. And finally, last but not least, Alva Finn. Good morning to all. Let's kick off with one of Europe's most controversial politicians, Marine Le Pen of the French National Rally. She has been doing a white supremacist symbol in a very widely tweeted image earlier this week. She was posing with a far-right politician from Estonia, and she claimed afterwards, oh, I didn't know it was a white supremacist symbol. And that is the symbol where you put your thumb and forefinger together, and you make a little little kind of like super A-OK sign, and It's all about plausible deniability, and everyone now knows this is a damn white supremacist symbol, so I'm giving her absolutely no free passes here. What about you? I think we're all in agreement that because of the context, it just can't be true. She was doing it with someone who was caught doing it and had the same thing to say. I mean, maybe they were making a statement of, oh, this could mean anything, but she can't say, oh, I don't know what it means. It's all a bit ridiculous and headline grabbing. and And are we just feeding her now by even talking about it? Probably, but yeah, again, we need to remind people you can't do the OK symbol anymore. That's something they've taken away from us. And it's meaning because so many people think that it's just like the OK one, but there's this hidden message and it's important before the elections and before the new commission and the new parliament really to, to make as much as an awareness how, how bad and how dangerous this lady is and her party to Europe and the future of Europe. And is this the sort of stuff we just brush over now, Kalina, because nonsense like this is happening all the time or like doesn't matter we've got to keep calling it out every time we see it even if it is standard these days I think it does matter and I think it's important to continue calling it out I think the challenge is of course one has to be careful to what extent is one buying into the orchestrated outrage that I think Marine Le Pen is very clever at creating like Nigel Farage when he went and called BBC enemy of the people you can't let it slide but it's exactly what he wants, is for everyone to talk about him for two days afterwards. But I think that's a challenge we're living in every day. I mean, people know how to play images. People know how to play on certain words. You have these debates all over Europe. Is a politician consciously using a historical reference, or is he just doing it, or is she doing it, to create outrage in a certain camp of politicians or, or people? So I think, I mean, that's, that's another responsibility that we have to deal with, but I, I don't think one should ever let anything slide, because once we start doing that... Than the thresholds. It's a no-slide podcast. That is our policy. Um, speaking of other debates in Europe, we've had a series of debates between the cast of thousands that's applying to become European Commission president. The last one was on public broadcasters last night. That's Wednesday night here in Europe. Of all the people on the debate stages over the last few weeks, do we think any of them is going to become European Commission president? As I've said before, I hope 
that there is an agreement reached on one of the people who's publicly campaigning because I think that if we don't, there's going to be deep division in Europe between the Council and the European Parliament. That's not saying that I agree with the Spitzen candidate process, but I think after going to all this trouble and them nominating people and they're campaigning and at least some people know who they are and if they're not elected in the end, then we have a problem. From last night, I think Franz Timmermans, again, was my favourite. He seems very presidential and he's also good at kind of reaching a little bit of a, or agreeing with other people. I like that in a politician, but some people don't. But you need it at the, in the European, on the European stage. He certainly has a sexy voice. <laughs> That's how I've heard that one. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, sexiest voice goes to Franz Timmermans. I, I'm going to say I thought Weber disappeared a little bit on the stage. Where when it's a head-to-head and and you're forced to focus on the two big parties, you know, he can hold his own. I'm not saying he's not competent or capable like Franz Timmermans. But when you're amongst a group of six and you're not aggressive, it's just kind of like, nah. Like, I just kind of thought a lot of them faded away. Of course, on another aspect, I would like to see a woman um, as a a president. I think uh, Europe would definitely change the whole Im- image and the whole uh, momentum that the world is looking at Europe. What do we think of Donald Tusk last week when he made his intervention saying it's going to be hard to have equality at the top of the EU? Was he signaling everyone who wants equality should get together and stamp their feet? Or was he actually just being a douche and being like, well, actually, it's not going to happen. So like, stop complaining. Maybe he was talking about the people he's heard who are being nominated. That's what I thought it was a reference to saying. And then basically asking them, the, the leaders, to propose a better gender balance. That's what I understood it to be. But I think you could have read it in a lot of different ways. He's, he's a bit like that, you know, Tusk says things to many people in, in what he says. Well, um, it's also about a fact, no? I mean, one could wish for more women, but if nobody appoints more women, and if they're not, if they're just not that many women running, then it's just a reality of life to say well, it's going to be hard to have. Bloomberg a, put out a list of 10 people who could be on the European mm-hmm. Central Bank board, 10 women. Mm-hmm. Uh, Politico put out a list of 14 okay. women who could easily be a president or No, no, certainly, but that's the thing that there's, there could be. Mm. The question now is, will people actually appoint them? in their home governments or in, you know, at home. I mean, and I think in that sense, it was irrespective of the intention of the comment and was a relevant comment to make, if at all, if just only to start a debate, including having us, for example, propose 14 candidates Mm -hmm. or having others push that issue. Because I think that's a challenge. You can always say, ah, we want more women. But at some point, you have to have women to pick from and to choose from and not just one. Also to kind of forego the accusations that you will have then otherwise and be like, well, you just pick the one woman to fill the post. And And then you need a president-elect who forces the issue, who says, I'm not treating this list at all until I get more women on. Or a set of MEPs who say, we're not voting this college up until we see more female names. You're all blocked until we get more women at the confirmation hearings. I don't buy that for the rest of the commission. I think it's different for the presidencies because they're usually filled by former prime ministers and there just isn't that many of them. But there are a lot of female ministers who could be moved up. It's still a smaller pool, that's true, but not as small a pool as it is for the commission or or the commission presidency, for the council presidency and the parliament has to be someone who is... But there's one woman in each country who can be a good European commissioner. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But there just has to be pressure that people actually appoint them. There's a lot of competent women out there. Do you see them in the company boardrooms? I don't. 
So I mean, that's the thing, you know, you have to build pressure that people actually feel obliged to do that. There you are, leaders. EU Confidential has spoken. Get your asses into gear and send some women to Brussels. Switching it up now to air quality, which is the theme of this EU Confidential Goes Green podcast, I think it's time we have a bit of a debate about should we be making public transit, so maybe not long distance trains, but I'm talking about metros and urban tram networks, should they just be free? We subsidize so many other things in our society, and we know we've got air pollution problems, so why don't we just bite the bullet and make public transport free? Would any of you support that idea? Definitely. Absolutely. And I would uh, take away all cars in Brussels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lena is the radical on the panel here. No, I don't think I'd take away all the cars. I don't know how it's we'd manage normal. that. <laughs> it's not normal, this traffic. It's not normal, this coughing. It's not, it, it's, uh, people are nervous. It's becoming impossible. So why not if the public transportation is, is faster and easier and imagine you don't pay for it. I, I don't mind. I mean, I would love to if there's a, a mechanism to do a, a, a survey or. A, but you to live vote next to that. a metro station. That's why it would work for you. Yeah, but I always look for a house next to a metro station. That's, I know, but some people, can't, <laughs> some people can't can't do that. And I think the other thing about Brussels is there are 400,000 people driving in from around the country every single day. So we can't really just, particularly for a place like in Brussels. government subsidized cars. Absolutely. It's insane. That, well, apparently, Lena just told me that that is going to yeah. be gotten rid of in 2020, which is two years too late, in my opinion. Or, yeah, I mean, it's 10 years too late. So if they could have been subsidizing that and giving tax breaks on it, I don't see why you can't provide free public transport but it goes for the entire rail system as well if you have that many people coming in in their cars they need to be able to get to a train and maybe they need to drive to the train station they need like park and rides yeah so i think even if you made brussels largely pedestrian people would still need to drive to the outskirts of brussels near a metro to get in so until they do that i think they need to subsidize better railway services Kalina, you deal with this sort of stuff every day for work how practical would it be could we make this happen or is the transition period going to be the the major drama well first of all i think definitely in order to get air quality issues air pollution under control i think european cities will have to completely rethink the public transport system because i mean i'm a huge public transport fan i've always used public transport i've also grown up in an inner city environment so i've never lived in the countryside so in, in the, from that perspective it's always been easy for me to take public transport i know there are a lot of people that don't like the tubes or the buses because they're cramped they stink they say they're a bit dirty mm. so i mean in that you're sense, a bunch of snobs get get Well, that's the the thing one can say, get get with the program, get over it. But then, you know, other people say, well, driving in a car to your work in the morning, listen to the radio is quite a nice way of starting a day. I get that. So I think, you know, to kind of break those habits, you will have to rechange the world. It's just a habit. habit, Like you can wear some nice earphones just as well on a metro. No, definitely. I mean, I agree. But then breaking habits seems to be more difficult. I reckon what people are really saying is I don't want to hang around poor people or people who don't look like me. Especially in a city like Brussels. And yes, some people smell. Like it's 100% true. I'm not denying it. I completely agree. But still think these, it's still concerns will have to be taken on board if you want to create public policy that actually works. Mm. I mean, it's Mm. difficult to say I love public transport and people, especially commuters being like, well, it's hard for me to go from from the suburbs of Brussels into Brussels without wasting far too much time. Nobody wants to get up an extra hour earlier just yeah. because they want to save the planet. True. They should. But, but if it can't work in Belgium, where can it work? It has the most dense rail network in all of Europe. 
and has for a very long time. So if if cars have still such an advantage in Belgium, even in the most dense rail network country, we're kind of screwed, aren't we? But it's tr- it's definitely true that that was, and I think people like their cars because it's a benefit to them. Um, mm. So I was recently talking to a friend who I would say like is very into like the planet, but it's like taking a f- five grand pay cut not to accept the car. And the other thing that they're doing now, if, if you don't want to, the car, what they do is they give you an Uber budget instead. What? Yeah. Yeah. And that is, I mean, why is that an alternative? You should really be giving, I don't know, like access to limes, right. velos, yeah. um, to the public transport system. That that really shocked me that you would get a f- an, an extra five grand to just go around on Ubers instead of using public transport. That's well, I'm proud Politico subsidizes its employees to use public transport. Yeah. I think and that's the challenge. No, it's all about money in the end. And to come back to your question in terms of viability, I mean, the question is what do governments spend money on? And for what and for whom? And the challenge is if you get 5,000 euros essentially in cash or via car or like vouchers, you can actually see that money as an individual consumer. And in Belgium, it's, I mean, I'm sorry, everyone who's not in Belgium, but it's always paying people off in this clientelist weird way in Belgium. So we have a system where most employees also get this thing called eco checks. So you get subsidized to buy green things at the same time as you get subsidized to have your damn polluting car. It's just so insane. I think that's a challenge. It's a clash of incentives. And yeah. at some point, mm. um, governments will need to get their incentives right. And now we have cross-border rail, which yeah. is taxed. But air travel isn't inside Europe. Like, it, we've got to get this kerosene tax. It's... Now, one final conundrum. Um, let's stir the pot here. It was put to me that the people who wear face masks when they're riding their bikes or when it's a heavy pollution day in the air, that actually that's completely pointless, sometimes because the masks don't work. And also, as an individual, you can't really save yourself from air pollution. Mm-hmm. Or only collective action, only a new legal and regulatory environment could change it. That's what one public health advocate told me. So I wonder, is it pointless and selfish to just think you can escape this overall problem by wearing a face mask? Or is it something that some people actually need to do to, you know, not get ill? I actually have one that is very uncomfortable, so I stopped wearing it. But as you know, I'm into the climate. I bike every day to work instead of actually even taking public transport. I don't eat meat, but I wear one because I know that that's not going to change soon. And I do do climate action I go out and I protest, but I think some people, and I see a lot like the eco-friendly people you see on the bike wearing the Respiros, I mean, you know they're out in the street. So this idea that they don't care. So you can do both. I think you can do both. And I think that a lot of people who already know how bad the air quality is are probably doing both and care about both and, and are taking action, individual action, but probably also protest to protest against air pollution and also climate change. How about you, Lena? Some people, they have illness, they cannot breathe, they have asthma, uh, or they have some uh, kind of allergies for the pollution, or their eyes. So it's a, I think it's a personal issue to choose to wear it. But that doesn't underestimate the importance of um, a call for action and of pushing for, like days sometimes in Brussels are really, it, it gets into your chest, you feel heavy. And a mask, I don't think will, will really help. Yeah, maybe the mask has to have a protest message on it. Yeah. So. A lot of them do. Okay. Yeah. I, my my mom has to wear one. Masks. She has emphysema, but I had to get for her birthday one that had her star sign on it. And I don't think that was really sending a very clear message. What about children who are, their lungs aren't fully developed and you're sending them out in that all day? I, yeah, I think that's going to be one of the big turning points is 
because it's not really ideological. It might be ideological somehow in who you target to solve the problem. But, you know, you just you don't have to be a parent who votes a particular way to be worried about pushing your kid in a stroller down one of the big roads in a big city. And I think that's going to start turning people's minds. Yeah, I agree. Let's hope the next commission will do something about it. Let's hope. Okay, you got a lot of messages, leaders of Europe this week, so please take some action. That's what we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Kalina. And as always, thank you to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin, because podcasting is a team effort and we couldn't make these episodes without them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 